there was a uh, couple that was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, the golden wedding anniversary. All their family, their kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids were gathered around, and the time uh, came for uh, the husband to say a, a, a word to the crowd and an endearing word about his wife. So he, he got everyone's attention and he looked at his wife of 50 years and he said, you know, honey, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. Well, the problem is she was a little bit hard of hearing. And so she couldn't quite understand what he said. Hey, what'd you say? So he repeated it a little bit louder. After 50 years, I've found you tried and true. Well, she, she still couldn't hear. What? Speak up. I can't hear you. So he practically shouting. He said, after 50 years, I found you tried and true. To which she retorted, well, let me tell you something, mister. After 50 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> we live in an era of broken promises and failed commitments. I mean, we could just think of Politicians, you know, politicians make promises during the campaign and then once elected, they just sort of dismiss them with a chuckle and an imperious wave of the hand. You didn't think I was serious, did you? Everyone knows I like to embellish and exaggerate. You have to learn not to take what I say so literally. It's all too easy to make meaningless promises. I promise I'll never do that again. Or if you'll do such and such, then... then and I promise I'll do this. I promise. I promise. I can remember one experience. We could all spend all day swapping anecdotes about times when someone has let us down by not keeping a commitment. But early on in my ministry, I had planted a church. I was in academics at the time, but a student and I had, and some friends and family had gotten together and planted this church. And and uh, we grew and grew and grew and got to about, on, our, on a peak Sunday, about 80 people. And we were ready to move into a new building. And so we found uh, the perfect building and it was, we were going to rent it. It was a, a building that was sort of owned by a, a store that was next door to it, but it was separate from the store. Really the perfect uh, place. And uh, we met with the owner and uh, we actually spent some time and money coming up with plans to build it out. He was going to let us build it out to more suit our Needs, But when we first met and kind of finally came to an agreement, I had uh, written up a lease and wanted him to sign it, even though we weren't going to be taking occupancy for another, I think it was six weeks or quite some time. And he was a kind of an old farmer fella, and he sort of chuckled, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, you know what, my daddy taught me that a handshake's as, as good as anything, and I don't need the, the, the lease, we can sign that later, but you've got my word that you're good for this lease. So we moved forward, we, we packed everything up, we loaded a truck on the day we were supposed to transfer everything over several weeks later. We literally had stuff on the truck, and I get a call on my cell phone. You know, I uh, had, had a better offer. We decided to, to not lease it to you. <laughs> you talk about frustrated uh, and, and, and coming very close to losing my testimony, uh, but... Uh, you know, we had to we had to pivot. We had to you know find a different place, and it was it was quite a traumatic uh, thing for our our little church. It's hard to stay faithful to commitments. Uh, you know, you, you you start a diet, right? Who can't relate to that? <laughs> or a savings account, right? Or every year at the beginning of the year, you come up with these New Year's resolutions. But uh, is there 
Is faithfulness a lost art? Um, is there any benefit to faithfulness? Well, th- these are the kind of questions that the writer of Hebrews talks about as we continue this series. We're calling this series Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in Trying Times. And so far, we've talked about in chapter 1 the idea of who is Jesus. The author encourages people his original readers, and by extension today, us, 2,000 years later, facing many of the same struggles, uh, not to the same extreme degree that they were, persecution, trials, and tribulations, but they may be coming our way, and for many Christians in other parts of the world, for the last 2,000 years, they can directly relate to what the Hebrew Christians in the late 60s A.D., when this was written, were facing. And the writer in chapter 1 says, look, Jesus is far superior to anything and everything that uh, Judaism or Uh, Other religions have to offer, angels, for example. Uh, So stick with Jesus. He's the best. Then in chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, we looked a few weeks ago at the danger of neglect. And the writer tells us to take your faith seriously. Uh, Don't just trust in Christ, become born again, and then sort of phone it in. Because the time's going to come when you're going to need to exercise faith as a believer in Christ. And if your faith is weak and immature and you've not been walking by faith, and in the Word of God and growing, then you're going to struggle. And then uh, later on in chapter 2, we looked at the future world leader, and he tries to motivate us to keep on keeping on in light of the fact that the Jesus who saved us is also the Jesus who will be the future world leader. Remember he said in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, that we're speaking about the world to come. He says, I know your world right now is not very enviable, but there's a better day coming. A better day coming. And then last week we looked at the rest of chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, in a, titled, in a message titled, Everyone Needs a Hero. And we talked about how Jesus meets the qualifications of a hero. He was like us, He related to us, and we need to let Him be our hero. Today in chapter 3, we come to this idea of faithfulness. And at its core, this is the writer's plea. If you really want to boil it down. Be faithful. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep on going. Persevere. Be faithful. And to motivate his readers and us, he's going to appeal to a couple of well-known examples of people who were faithful, that modeled faithfulness. These two men were well-known not only to the original readers of Hebrews, but they're well-known to us too, Jesus and Moses. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, before we get to the text, let's kind of make sure we're defining our terms. In English, the word faithful means steadfast in allegiance or firm in adherence to promises. In other words, trustworthy. Trustworthy. The Greek word is pistos. Pistos. It's used 67 times in the New Testament. It's the adjectival form of the noun pistis, which is faith or the verb pistuo, which is believe or trust. And this idea of pistos means reliable, trustworthy, dependable, basically the same thing as faithful means in English. And pistos is used twice in these six verses in Hebrews chapter 3. The word pistos, faithful, is often applied to believers. For example, in a couple of his epistles, Paul begins by For example, in Ephesians, referring to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians, to the faithful brethren in Christ. 
And Jesus himself uses this phrase, faithful, a lot of times. And I don't know if you remember the story of, uh, of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. Remember that parable? It's a parable. Jesus tells a parable about this widow who goes to an unjust judge in the parable, uh, requesting uh, relief from her problem, and the judge keeps blowing her off and blowing her off. But finally, because of her persistence, uh, he, he listened and gave her what she wanted. It's ultimately a parable about a prayer. And, and, and in Luke chapter 18, we read, The Lord said, Hear, after, after telling the parable, he says, Hear what the, the unjust judge said. He shall, and shall God not also avenge his own who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? And this is directly relevant to what the Hebrew Christians were facing and what many of us are facing. Be faithful, even in the midst of suffering. We don't know the details. It was just a parable, but this, this woman was persistent. She knew where to find relief, and she stayed after it. We, too, know where to find relief. You know, we live in a fallen world. We, you know, a lot of times people say, well, how come God allows so much suffering? God's not allowing the suffering. I mean, He is from a sovereignty perspective, but God's certainly not causing it. This is The world that we now live in is not the world God created. Do you realize that? God created the world in sinless perfection. But we messed it up. So we are simply reaping the consequences of depravity, of what we... God warned us, hey, if you eat from this one tree, it's going to go poorly. In fact, He says, you'll die. And what did we do? We didn't heed the warning. And because of the curse of sin, there are thorns on rose bushes. Uh, there are, uh, you know, forest fires and hurricanes and tornadoes and natural disasters. And the world, whole earth is under the curse and, and has been reaping the consequences ever since. We live in a fallen world. And God is patient and gracious, not willing that any should perish. And He is allowing uh, over time for things to, to continue on, hoping that everyone who wants to will have the opportunity to believe the gospel. It's a universal call. Whosoever will may come. Uh, the Bible ends with this plea, whosoever will, let him drink freely from the water of life. But someday, God's going to say enough is enough. Uh, the long arm of God's mercy will reach its end, and He will say, we're moving into the next phase. He'll call the church home to meet Him in the air, according to passages like uh, 1 Thess 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thess 2, and many others, John 14. And then following that, we're going to see all of the end times prophecies that remain unfulfilled that we've been talking about in our Bible study hour begin to be fulfilled. And ultimately, Christ will come back, rule and reign in a perfect world and perfect peace and justice. And then after a thousand year reign on the old heaven and the old earth, He's going to destroy the old heaven and the old earth that's under the curse of sin and make all things new. There shall be no more tears and sorrow. So God has a plan. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the first part of chapter uh, 2. But in that parable of uh, the persistent widow, it's directly relevant. When we face suffering, we need to be persistent and be faithful and hang on. And at the end of that parable, I, I thought this was interesting, Jesus asks this question in Luke 18.8. I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. In other words, God will bring justice someday. Nevertheless, it's almost like the Lord pauses introspectively. If God in the flesh can be introspective, I don't know. Uh, 
But he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith, that's pistis, the noun form, on the earth? In other words, will he find people that stayed with it, that remained faithful? How much faith will he find? It's the same thing that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he says, for example, in chapter 5, we should walk by faith, not by sight. And then later on he says, you know, we ought to examine ourselves and see if we're essentially what he's saying is walking by faith. A lot of people misunderstand 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and think that it's somehow a way that you're supposed to test to see if you're really going to heaven. Listen, the Bible never tells you to look at your life to see if you're going to heaven because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us, Titus 3, 5, Galatians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. So the only place we look for our assurance of eternal life is the promise of Jesus who said, if you believe in me, I give you eternal life. It's a present possession. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? If so, your eternal destiny is secure. So 2 Corinthians 13.5 is not suggesting that we examine our lives and see if we've done enough good works to really measure up. It's saying, see if you're in the faith. Are you walking by faith? Are you doing what Christians are supposed to do? We're saved by faith. And then we are progressively sanctified by faith. And when the Lord comes back, is He going to find faith? Boy, as we look around us today at this dearth of faithfulness in our world, it makes you really wonder. Paul tells us that faithfulness is an important quality in believers. Speaking of himself and the apostles, and by extension all believers, it's required that stewards be found faithful. Be found faithful. And what we're going to see is that those who are faithful exhibit at least three characteristics according to this passage. As we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 3, the first thing we notice is that faithfulness requires our attention. Requires our attention. It's not a passive concept. You can't sort of make a promise of some kind and then just put it on autopilot, right? Requires attention. Now, we don't get saved to begin with by making a promise. Salvation's a gift, and it's one-directional. We're the receiver. God's the gift. It's a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. We simply receive it. But as a disciple, then, as a disciple, every day we're to count the cost. That's what Jesus says. He says, you know, don't put your hand to the plow and look back, talking to believers. Uh, don't uh, build a tower unless you count the cost. Um, you know, we, we are. We, it's a high calling to serve Him. And there are many... Uh, commands and exhortations to believers about living the faithful life. And I think many Christians flippantly try to phone it in. And they think that the Christian life can be lived out on autopilot. But as we're going to see, it requires our attention. In verse 1 we read, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that word consider for a moment. Consider. If last week's question was, who is your hero? This week's question is, who are you paying attention to? Who are you looking at? Who is your model? And the writer tells us to focus on Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, confession here refers not just to empty words, but something worthy of our attention. So, we have, as a believer, again, not as a means of accepting Christ and becoming born again. That's simply by faith. 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life on faith alone. But as a believer, every day we lay down our lives, right? 
take up your cross, Jesus says, to believers. And as we take up our cross, that's a confession. That's a confession. And it's something worthy of our attention. That word consider is the Greek word kataneo. It means to consider closely or think very carefully about. Kataneo. It's used 14 times in the New Testament and twice in Hebrews. You remember uh, Peter's experience in Acts when he had the vision of the sheet? Remember that? And, uh, and the Bible tells us, as Peter's recounting this story, when I observed it intently and considered. Now, that's two different words there. Observed intently is a synonymous word for kataneo, but considered there, underlined on the screen, is kataneo. In other words, the vision of unclean animals was so unlike anything Peter could have ever conceived of, he did a double take. He had to really study it to make sure he understood what he was really seeing, and he understood the Lord's point. Kataneo was often used by the Lord when He wanted His disciples and others to really listen, to pay attention to what I'm about to say, and so forth. Uh, so, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember this? He, Jesus said, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Pay close attention to. Because we don't often stop to think about the ravens. When we begin to focus on our circumstance, and we become overwhelmed because we've lost our job, we don't have food in the cupboards, we're worried about where the next, pay, where the next light bill is going to be paid from or the mortgage payment is going to come from. That's what we're focused on. Jesus says, no, no, pay very close attention to those birds you see flying around. Do you think they worry about their food? He goes on, consider the lilies. We have lots of beautiful wildflowers around here. Do we ever really stop and closely consider? They neither toil nor spin, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Or I love this, same word. I mean, it's only used 14 times, but a lot of them by Jesus in the same passage, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's account. Remember this? Why do you look, he's kind of directing this at the Pharisees, the whole crowds were there on the hillside, uh, and we know from the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount that the Pharisees were there because they didn't like what they heard. But Jesus says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't look more carefully, katana'eo, at the plank in your own eye? See, we are looking at the wrong things. Maybe that's why we're not always as faithful. So you know, the, the idea here is that the Pharisees need to look more closely at themselves instead of straining to see every fault in every other person when really they've got, you know, they're pointing out these specks, but they've got this huge log protruding from their eye. Katana'eo. One more example. In James, it's used twice. James chapter 1, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing, katana'eo, looking carefully at himself in the mirror. For he observes himself carefully, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Fascinating passage. And I debated about whether or not to kind of take a moment here and, and talk about this just for the sake of time, but I decided I would. 
So in the context here, notice he says he's like a man observing his natural face. That's, this is the New King James. That's the way our English Bibles define that. Literally, if we had a wooden literal translation, it would be he is like a man observing the face of his birth. The face of his birth is the literal word for word. Now, in James 1, just a few sentences earlier, he'd already talked about how we've been born from above. Same word. Same word. So the birth that he's talking about here is the new birth. So get the picture. You look in the mirror carefully and you see a new person in Christ. Someone who's born again. Earlier in James 1 he says being born from above. Okay. And then, having observed yourself carefully, he says it twice, you go away and you act like an unbeliever. You're not a doer of the word. Now, the original audience reading this would have thought how, how, how profound, how silly of a thing. Nobody is going to carefully examine themselves in the mirror and then walk away and forget who they are. And yet that's what we do when we're not faithful, when we're not being doers of the Word, when we are in Christ positionally but not living out the faith practically. Faithfulness requires our attention. Where's your attention? What are you considering? If your attention is not on Christ, then your faithfulness to Him is likely to wane when your paradigm is challenged or you face difficulties. But he goes on, the middle section of these six verses reminds us that faithfulness requires an assessment because, of course, his challenge is to consider Christ. Um, the question on the minds of the original audience was, is Jesus worthy of our faithfulness? That's, that's really the crux of the matter. They had trusted in Him. They'd become born again. They were assembling together. They were, who knows, some of them might have been saved for two, two decades or more. This is 67 A.D. The church was founded in 33 A.D. And so they knew Jesus. They had become born again. But because of external pressures... They were contemplating forsaking the assembling of themselves together, reverting back to Judaism, the safe haven that was still in cahoots with Rome at the time, and walking away from the church and all that it stood for. So essentially what he's saying is, isn't Jesus worthy of your faithfulness? Consider Him. You know, sometimes we pledge loyalty to someone or some cause, but over time we have a, a change of heart. After 50 years, we get tired of them, right? The writer wants us to know that Jesus is worthy of our faithfulness. With Jesus, there's never a reason to reconsider our faithfulness. Notice what he says. Consider the apostle and high priest who was faithful to him who appointed him. I mean, think about Jesus. He was loyal to his calling. And by the way, so was Moses. Jesus was faithful to him, God who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Last week we saw how Jesus was merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest in chapter 2. Same word there. Faithful. Faithful. Pistos. Pistos. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he, Jesus, might be a merciful and faithful. High priest. You know, the book of Revelation is interesting. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes you'll hear people refer to the last book of the Bible as Revelations, plural. That's incorrect. It's the book of Revelation, singular, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it begins with a reference to Jesus being faithful, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And then at the end, when He comes back at the second coming, what, does he, uh, what, what is He called? He who sat on the white horse is called faithful and true, because He's faithful. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that future world leader. You know, Revelation is really the most easy book in the Bible to outline and understand. It uses a lot of figurative language, but that you know we use figurative language all the time. In fact, I just used one called hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole. I'm not always using figurative language, but I said I'm using it all the time. Constantly, we, we, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You know, things like that. My children are driving me up a wall. You know, not you. Um, so, uh, we, figures of speech do not make things more difficult to understand. They make them easier to understand. But the book of Revelation is fascinating because in chapter 6, verse 1, the Antichrist comes on the scene. And guess what? He's riding a white horse. But as we've been discussing in our Bible study hour, he's the great deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. And he's, he's, he's going to deceive the whole world. Uh, Satan is through this Antichrist that he's going to empower, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8. So chapter 6, you've got a rider on a white horse. Guess what? At the end of the book, another rider appears. But this one is called Faithful and True. He's not the deceiver. He's the real deal. Faithful and true. Jesus is faithful. There are many reminders of the faithfulness of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, He who calls you is faithful. Uh, Hebrews, back to our text, Hebrews 3 says, For this one has been counted, that's Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Ah, okay, now he's starting to kind of step on a few toes of his original readers. Because remember, they were considering reverting from Jesus and Christianity back to Judaism and Moses and the law. And so he, he like a master uh, speaker, he starts out by referencing Jesus and Moses, and they're like, yes, Moses is faithful. Okay, yes, Jesus is faithful. Then he's going to say, matter of fact, Jesus is more faithful than Moses. Uh, his readers were very familiar with Moses, and since they were contemplating reverting back to the Mosaic Law, he wanted to remind them that while Moses was faithful, Jesus was even more so. He goes on, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. In other words, whereas Moses served faithfully in the days of the tabernacle worship, Jesus Christ actually designed that very system of worship. He's reminding them that that tabernacle didn't originate with Moses. It has a divine origin. And this is a powerful testimony, by the way, this verse, to the deity of Christ. If I were uh, in my theology proper class, if I was teaching this right now, I would use this as one of the proof texts to show and there are many. Jesus himself said, I and my Father are one, but that Jesus is God. If God built everything and Jesus Christ is the builder of God's house, then Jesus is God. Moses indeed was faithful. So there's the second occurrence of that word in this passage. In all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward by Christ as the Son. See the contrast that he's making here? Moses was a servant. 
Jesus is the very Son of God. The tabernacle was a microcosm or a foreshadowing of God's greater house. And, and, and Moses served the model faithfully. But Jesus rules over a larger house faithfully. Not as a servant, but as God's Son with ultimate full authority. This model was, was simply a sort of a shadow. The writer's going to use that concept later on in Hebrews, talking a lot about the fact that if you go back to the law, if you go back to Judaism, you are going back to a shadow. Christ is the substance. He's the once-for-all sacrifice, right? He no longer has to go in behind the curtain every year on the Day of Atonement. He did it once for all as the Lamb of God. You know, we find it hard to be motivated sometimes when we look at the world around us. So did they. It was hard to picture the world to come. It was hard to picture the substance when the shadow that they were facing right then was so difficult. But if we can just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, which he's going to sort of conclude with at the very end of the book in chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our what? Faith, pistis, the, the reason that we are faithful, uh, then we can find hope and strength. So it's, it requires an assessment. So do the assessment. Do it yourself. Is Christ worthy of your faithfulness? It's nice sometimes to keep a list of, of the times in your life when, when you've gotten answers to prayer or God's done miracles or you see the unmistakable hand of God in your life. And when you begin to remind yourselves of those, it makes it easier to remain faithful. Do you see any reason to doubt Him or abandon Him? You know, the children of Israel back in, in, in their culture, uh, they didn't have you know, the printing press or writing. It was a very much an oral tradition. And a lot of the psalms that we read, which they sung together, are simply rehearsing the things that Yahweh, God, had done for them. We don't do that much anymore. You know, we're an instant culture where we post it or tweet it or whatever you do in social media, and then it's on to the next thing. Gather the family around the table sometime. And just go back and, and remember the highlights of the, of the times when God is faithful in your life. Do the assessment. So faithfulness requires not only our attention and an assessment, but finally at the end of chapter, uh, of verse 6 in this passage, we're reminded that it requires anticipation. Keeping our eye on the prize provides motivation to remain faithful. Notice what he says, whose house we are. See, God's house consists of people, not boards and curtains and things like that and rocks the writer was thinking of priestly functions here because that was what was on the mind of these Jewish Christians remember they had been devout Jews so they understood all the sacrificial system and the, the, the system in Judaism and, 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 and that's pretty clear from the context he's sort of calling these things to their mind and reminding them of the fact that that's inferior to Jesus Christ and here he moves from the thought of the house as a sphere where those priests in Judaism did their activities to the house consisting of the people who engage in those activities. We are His house. His readers, us, Jesus, or the writer here affirms, comprise the sons, Jesus' house. Contingent, however, on one important consideration. 
whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence. Wow, what in the world is he saying here? Is he saying that if we aren't faithful, that somehow we're not a child of God? No, not at all. Remember, he's talking about being part of the house, the special functions that these priests had. The children of Israel were comprised of a lot of different groups and categories. There was the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. There were all kinds of uh, groups in there. And here he's been talking about those who had the special privilege, privileges. And here we have that same hope. He, he repeats this idea of holding on to your courage several times uh, as we're going uh, to see, for example, he says in chapter 10, Hold fast our confession without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. Don't cast away your confidence, because it has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He's going to use the children of Israel as the consummate example. The children of Israel were not faithful, the Exodus generation, in the wilderness. So guess what? They didn't get to cross over the Jordan and enjoy the promised land of milk and honey, did they? Of the original generation, only two got to cross over, Joshua and Caleb, right? The rest of them died before getting to experience the promise. Now, does that mean that all of them are in hell today? Of course not. Moses was one of them. No. Being faithful has a great reward. That, that's not heaven, uh, the reward is special positions of privilege in, in the coming kingdom someday. In Hebrews 12, Jesus, or, uh, the, the writer says, Run with endurance. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and let us run with endurance. This race that is set before us is what he's going to explain. Looking unto Jesus, as I said. So that's a fascinating passage, 12, 1 and 2. Remember chapter 11, he goes through all these examples of people who were faithful, the great hall of faith, we call it. Um, and then he says, now, because we're surrounded by these witnesses, and there's been a lot of debate over whether he's referring to the ones that were faithful that he just talked about, as if they're sort of looking over um, the edge of heaven and watching us and cheering us on. I don't know that that's really what he had in mind, because we can't, according to Scripture, we can't necessarily see from heaven to earth. You know, when you, get, when you die and go to heaven, you don't get bionic eyes. We're still humans. We still are subject to human limitations. We're not gods. We don't have all-seeing vision. Now, God, in His sovereignty, could call us into His office and say, hey, I want to show you something just to you know, maybe encourage us or something in heaven. But we don't get to automatically see what's going on. You know, people will say all the time, my great aunt... Sally, she's looking down from heaven smiling. Well, I mean, she could be if God allowed it, but it's not automatic. You don't get to see everything. You're not all seeing when you get to heaven. So I'm not sure if that's really what the writer had in mind. Could be. I wouldn't die on this hill. But I, I really think the, the witnesses here are others that are looking around. Because he, he, in the same context, he's talking about spurring one another on to good works and um, you know, encouraging one, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And I think his idea here is, you know, we need to be aware of those around us, glance at the spectators, you might say, but gaze at the Savior, really focus on Him, looking on to Jesus. So back to the text, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Only those who remain faithful will enjoy privileges of rewards and the promises that are given to believers of rewards. Uh, in fact, Jesus makes that very plain in Luke 19. 
And I'll close with this. In Luke 19, it's the day before the triumphal entry. So they're outside Jerusalem on the outskirts of the city. Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem the next day on the back of a donkey. And then it's going to be a rapid succession of, you know, uh, cursing the fig tree, uh, uh, overturning the tables of the money changers, the words that he has with the Pharisees, then, of course, the uh, Olivet Discourse, um, and then uh, the upper room with his disciples where he washes their feet and institutes the Lord's Supper, then the betrayal in the garden, and by Friday night of that week, Friday morning, rather, he's in the tomb. So this is that fateful week. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us that as they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the disciples wondered, uh, you know, when is the kingdom going to come? Maybe it's now, right? It's Passover. Well, here we are in Jerusalem. He's been promising this kingdom. He talked a lot about the kingdom all through his three-and-a-half-year ministry, and he promised the disciples they would get to reign on 12 thrones with him in that kingdom. Maybe this is it. And, and the Bible tells us that because that was what was in their minds, Jesus told them this parable, and it's called the parable of the Minas. And so he reminds them that the king is going to go away for a while, and he's going to come back later. And while he's gone, and he's going to be gone for a long time, they need to be busy about the Father's business. So he gives them each a mina. This is not the same thing as the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Completely different context, and the details are different. In the parable of the talents, one gets one, one gets five, one gets ten. Here they all get the same thing, one mina. And then he comes back and he says, uh, you know, how'd you do when I come back after a long delay? <coughs> how'd you do? In other words, the kingdom is not going to happen now. I call it the parable of delay. The kingdom is going to happen down the road. There's a lot that has to happen in God's plan of the ages before the kingdom gets inaugurated. So in the meantime, be faithful. And notice what we read. This is that word, pistos. He said to them, well, to him, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. As they go into the kingdom... Some people are going to be put in charge of more or less, depending on how faithful we are. It has nothing to do with whether we get into the kingdom. Everybody who knows the Lord Jesus gets into the kingdom, but He's going to reward us differently. And the Bible has a great deal to say about the doctrine of rewards. Uh, Revelation says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. Now, that can't be heaven because we don't get heaven based on our works, or else the Bible would contradict itself. He's talking about rewards. The writer's point in these six verses is that the readers should follow the example of faithfulness to God that Jesus and Moses set. Or they could lose their privileged position in the coming kingdom. Sure, you know, if you abandon the faith, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny His own. We're His children. But there's a great cost for doing that. And you need to count that cost before you so quickly turn back. Faithfulness requires our attention, our assessment, and our anticipation. <clears throat> so how are you doing? How's our faithfulness? We can't speak for other people. We can't make somebody else keep their commitments or their promises. But we can be accountable for ourselves. And particularly when it comes to our walk with the Lord Jesus, we want to be faithful. So here's the takeaway. <clears throat> be faithful because He is faithful, and He's our example. Let's pray. Father, I <clears throat> thank You for this passage, and I thank You for the encouragement and the motivation that it provides, that even in the toughest of times, You are worthy, You are faithful, You are a good, good Father, 
And uh, Lord, we thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray today, <clears throat> if there's anyone here who's not trusted in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross, as their only hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins, that nobody would leave this place today without <clears throat> simply trusting in Jesus, in whose precious name that we pray. Amen.